Welcome to We Need to Talk About Tech, where we talk about the past, present, and future of technology. Hello, everyone in podcast land. Welcome to this week's episode. Today, we're talking about Canadian parents that want to sue Fortnite. We talk about legacy check marks going away from Twitter. We talk about Unreal Engine 5.2 and the MetaHuman update. And we're talking about new, bigger, AMD-powered framework laptops. So uh, our first topic of the podcast is uh, about Fortnite and a Canadian class action lawsuit that actually just started going underway this past week, where a mother in British Columbia, Vancouver, British Columbia, claims that the game is designed to be as addictive as possible uh, for children, and it's kind of a problem, uh, according to this mother, and they are looking for compensation, including medical fees for the addiction, as well as just, you know, bringing to light the fact that they feel that Epic Games, the creator of Fortnite, made a game that was specifically designed to target children in an unhealthy way. This is interesting because there has been some class action lawsuits from uh, Epic Games in the past. I believe they even had a settlement of a Canadian class action lawsuit in the past um, in related to uh, loot box purchases, which I think is is more about the save the world section, because generally in the main game of Fortnite that we normally think about, which is the Battle Royale, there are no real loot boxes in that version of the game. But there was a class action lawsuit in the past regarding loot boxes in both Fortnite and in Rocket League. That was settled a while ago. Uh, And then there was also a settlement in the States uh, where Epic Games was specifically sued for using dark patterns. And I think this is something that we both have talked about in the past when we've played uh, Fortnite a long time ago. Dark patterns are essentially these kind of tactics that were used to trick people, including kids, into purchasing things that they didn't want to actually purchase. And I don't know if you remember this, but there used to be a situation uh, in Fortnite where if you have a skin, in order to check the different styles of the skin, you'd press a button, let's say square on a PlayStation controller, and you'd be able to check the styles of that skin, you know, select whatever style you want. But then if you went to the store, that square button that would normally be used to check the styles of a skin was used to purchase a skin. And they specifically designed it so that people would accidentally purchase skins. At least that was the argument that was made. And they had to settle for that. And now if you go into Fortnite and if you go into the store, the button to purchase a skin is now a completely different button because before people were just buying skins on accident. It even happened to me in the past. And that was uh, essentially why they were sued. They've, they've kind of switched around those, those methods. Now, this particular lawsuit it goes in a little bit of a different direction and it's specifically targeting the idea that this game seems to be designed to be too addictive. This is a little strange in in my opinion because I think games are supposed to be designed to be fun and fun can be addictive and I think if they went after the same kind of issues that were gone after in the United States class action lawsuit, I think this would have made a little bit more sense, but a lot of the arguments that are made in this class action lawsuit, it's still early days, but they describe what Epic Games is doing here with Fortnite in quotes as predatory and exploitative. Uh, and they specifically mention that it's a problem because of its popularity among minors. Now, uh, Fortnite, I think, is, is a game that's popular around a bunch of age groups. 
So I think this is specifically for parents to hopefully gather into this class action lawsuit or if they feel that their kids have been uh, unjustly targeted by this game. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, do you feel uh, with this class action lawsuit, this is something that needs to happen? I know you've played a little bit of Fortnite in the past. Do you think that the game is designed to be really addictive? I, I certainly do, but I think that's the point. But do you think that that's potentially a problem? Uh, I know in the past... There has been a declaration by the WHO of video game addiction actually being a diagnosable kind of issue now. Uh, so maybe this is a, uh, an opportunity where these video game developers maybe need to kind of rein in their practices of whether maybe not just focusing on their game being fun, but also about, you know, it not being too addictive or too fun to the point where maybe it could potentially be an addiction problem. Uh, and one of the reasons why they bring that up is because they say, hey, Fortnite changes very often and brings in new skins and brings in new ways to customize and new things to purchase, which causes kids to always be engaged with the game. I personally would say think of that as a good thing, but I don't know, maybe in games like Fortnite and in games like Destiny, that are kindly kind of always evolving and Apex Legends always evolving and changing, maybe that could be seen as a bad thing in the future, especially when it comes to games that are rated E for everyone or uh, available for kids to play. Do you think maybe that's something that video game developers need to take into account in the future? Or maybe this lawsuit might be a little bit, uh, a little bit of an exaggeration in terms of being an addiction just because it's fun and constantly changing. Yeah, I think it's an exaggeration because it's, because it's fun and constantly changing. Can some people be addicted to Fortnite? Yeah, I definitely see that. Can some people be addicted to video games? I see that. People can get addicted to all sorts of things. But I mean, it's a game. It's supposed to be fun. And when you're developing any sort of game, you know, whether it's a video game or even if it's a card game or a board game, you want it to be as fun as possible. No one's designing the game to put a limit to how much fun you can have. You know, they're not sitting there like, oh, you know, settle down. We can't make this game too much fun or else people might play it a lot. Like, that's the whole point of designing the game. Yeah. Right? Now, the problem with Fortnite, and I guess the problem with video games these days, is that you can have them everywhere, especially when you look at games that you can have on your phone, right? With a, like I mentioned, a board game. Right, You need to be either at home or at your friend's house. You need to be somewhere where you can sit down and play this game for a period of time. Right, And then when you look at a card game, all right, you can take your cards. You could look at something like Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh! or you know, Magic the Gathering. You can take your cards with you and you can play it in different places, but you still need to like dedicate time and have someone to play it with. And now when we have video games and games on your phone, you could take your phone everywhere and you could play this game everywhere. And I guess especially the thing with Fortnite is it's not something that you have to dedicate hours to. You could dedicate, you know, an hour, 30 minutes, 10, 15 minutes to. And it's easy to get those quick hits of games. And I think the portability and the fact that it is everywhere is what makes it such a problem to some people. But at the end of the day, I don't think you can say, oh, don't make your game as fun or as addictive, mm -hmm. right? And I think, you know, you brought up Apex Legends. When you look at something like Apex Legends compared to something like Fortnite, because I've been a fan of both games, Apex Legends 
is essentially the same build as Fortnite, right? It's a free-to-play multiplayer game, uh, you know, free-to-play battle royale. You buy cosmetics and skins. The difference is the cosmetics and skins and emotes in Apex suck. <laughs> in Fortnite, they're actually good. So that's why Fortnite makes a lot more money. Both games constantly update. But when you have a game like that where so many people are playing it, when you have a bug that pops up, it's not just, okay, we have a bug that a few people experience. When you have hundreds of millions of people playing, that's a bug that is possibly affecting hundreds of millions of people. Mm -hmm. A small bug could affect a lot of people. So as soon as you find that bug, you need to update it quickly and fix it. Fortnite is good at updating and fixing things quickly, right? Which is a negative thing from this parent, but it's in terms of keeping this game, you know, keeping this game ecosystem flowing and active and keeping consumers on it, it's a good thing. Apex Legends has bugs and they do not update them quickly. There's oftentimes their whole servers like are shut down because they're trying to fix bugs, right? So it's either, yeah, it's like, okay, do you want a game where if there is a problem, it's going to be fixed quickly and efficiently. Or if there is a problem, it's going to shut down and it's not going to work. And then you have to maybe wait a whole day before you start playing again. Like all of these companies are trying to make fun games for people to play. It just so happens that Fortnite is one that is much more successful than the other ones. And maybe if other companies, you know, either made games that weren't as buggy or made games that had better skins that people actually were interested in, then we'd be talking about these other companies. But it's kind of like, can't really punish Fortnite for being so successful. Now, when you talk about like, you know, the uh, some of the dark tactics they were using, like the preview button being the same button as a buy-in button. Yes, that is that you can't do that. That's, you know, that's deceitful and sneaky. Yeah. But just in terms of the sheer gameplay mechanics, I mean, it's a good game, so people are going to play it, right? If they're going to sue Fortnite one day, they're going to try and sue Call of Duty the next day. And one of Fortnite's representatives had a good point. They say the claims don't reflect how Fortnite operates, and it ignores all the measures parents can take to control their children's game gaming experience. Yes. Right? If you're under 13, you have to use your parents' email address to register, and they have to give you permission to play. So it's not like... These kids can just play all that they want. If you're under a certain age, you have to get permission from your parent. And if you're a parent who's giving your child permission, then you have to understand that like, hey, these games are meant to be fun and kids aren't the best at measuring how much fun that they have or limiting how much fun they have, right? Kids aren't going to be playing a game and say, oh, you know what? I'm having too much fun with this. Let me settle down. Let me grab a textbook. Let me do some homework. You as a parent are supposed to be parenting your child to do that. Right. So it's not necessarily the video game company's role to to limit how much fun your kids are having. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, the interesting part of this year. Like one of the quotes of this lawsuit in particular uh, states, quote, video games have been around for decades, but Fortnite is unique in that the science and psychology of addiction and cognitive development are at the core of the game's design. And then they go on to say, if Epic Games had warned AB, which is the name that the sewer is going by in this point. So if Epic Games had warned that playing Fortnite could lead to psychological harm and financial expense, they would have not allowed her son to download Fortnite, end quote. So I think this lawsuit in particular is also stating that, okay, Epic Games knows what they're doing. They're targeting 
the psychological kind of feeling of, you know, going up a rank or getting a new skin or, you know, pressing a button and, and uh, unlocking that new feature or whatever. And they're saying that if there was a disclaimer at the beginning of Fortnite that said, hey, this game is going to have psychological harm and financial expense to the person who's playing it, uh, they wouldn't have allowed them to play the game. And I think that's an interesting kind of take. I don't necessarily know if I agree with it, but maybe that could be another kind of avenue of here of saying, okay, if maybe games now have to start having disclaimers that say, hey, there are, because I think even in app stores, we also, we already see, like, if you download an app or a game that has in-app purchases, at least in Android, I'm pretty sure this is how it works in iOS as well, there will be a tag on the app that says, hey, in-app purchases are in this game uh, to kind of let you know that you're not just downloading this app, you're also downloading the ability to spend money in this app. And yeah. maybe that's something that that uh, Fortnite on maybe game consoles maybe don't show. But then also, you're right, Epic did respond and they are going to fight this particular uh, class action lawsuit because they say, quote, these claims do not reflect how Fortnite operates and ignores all the ways that parents can control their child's experience through Epic's parental controls, which is exactly what you're talking about. There are controls that limit, uh, one, spending, the ability to buy V-Bucks, uh, and in a lot of other kind of situations, I don't know if Fortnite has this, but there's even ways to limit the amount of time that uh, someone can spend in a game. So yeah, this is um, a, a kind of a, an interesting one. At the end of the day, though, there is precedent because... Uh, like I said, the U.S. lawsuit was for a completely different reason. It was for uh, data collection uh, of minors, which was is not allowed, but also the patterns that they used to, to kind of trick people into buying things. And that uh, class action lawsuit settled for 520 million U.S. dollars. Uh, 275 million of that was for the collecting of personal information of people who are underage, but 245 million of that was refunds to customers. And I remember when I saw this, I wanted to get refunds because I was tricked <laughs> into buying skins, although they do have a refund policy that I was able to take advantage of, but it's limited. Uh, but that was specific to the United States. So $245 million going back to the users. So maybe after that lawsuit, um, and also Epic Games did speak about this issue at GDC, which we'll talk a little bit about later, but maybe th this parent does see, hey, there is a different situation in which they were sued for. Uh, I am not happy with how this game operates uh, in terms of making my kid addicted to it. I am going to either, maybe this is just, you know, for money, but also for awareness of like, hey, this happened in the States. Let's bring this over here. I will say that there are two completely different reasons. And I, I would have personally liked, and hopefully we, we will still see this, a class action lawsuit uh, for the same reasons that Epic settled outside of court in the States come to Canada. Because I think those... Uh, practices that they used are very detrimental, like you mentioned. They're not cool. They shouldn't have been done in the first place. And companies do need to uh, feel the consequences for that. And Epic Games is, you know, making a ton of money right now. They they could stand to feel a little bit more consequences. Although I don't know if I particularly agree with this BC mother's uh, uh, class action lawsuit, but I guess we'll see. Yeah. Uh, so our second topic of the podcast is Twitter. And it's legacy verification going away. So if you're not familiar, Twitter has always had, even prior to the purchase by Elon Musk, the ability to be verified. Generally, this was done by a team. It was very secretive, but you could kind of hope and send in an application that you would 
uh, get a blue check mark to show that you were actually the person that your Twitter handle said you were. Ever since the purchase, that whole verification system has kind of been thrown in disarray. There has been a lot of talk about the potential of changing that, including paying for Twitter blue to get a check mark for anyone, not necessarily just people who are notable in the community, like journalists or YouTubers or just people who are well known, but also uh, the ability to get different colored check marks that mean different things. Now, that didn't affect legacy verification. So people who were verified before still had their blue check marks to show that they were who they say they were, but it was a lot less useful because there were so many blue check marks floating around out there. And we did see instances of people uh, pretending like they were other people and, you know, some of those accounts got banned. But on April 1st, Twitter will be winding down their verification policy. This comes directly from their official verified Twitter account. They state, on April 1st, we will begin winding down our legacy verified program and removing le legacy verified check marks. To keep your blue check mark on Twitter, individuals can sign up for Twitter Blue here, and it sends a link to the Twitter Blue, and then organizations can sign up for Twitter Verified Organizations, and then there's a separate, separate link. And this is important because they are two completely different systems, and I use completely in air quotes because they are kind of the same, they just cost completely different uh, amounts. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is interesting because I think a lot of people may have assumed that if they were already verified, their verification would stick, and maybe they didn't have to pay the $8 uh, Twitter Blue uh, subscription fee, but it looks like that won't be the case. And then also, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they differentiate between organizations and individuals. I know that organizations do have a little bit extra features, and I want to stress a little bit. Uh, I'll actually read it right here. When you go into the feature section, this is all that it says. Twitter verified organizations elevates and distinguishes organizations and their affiliates on Twitter. Gold and gray check marks, square avatars, and custom affiliation badges verify and differentiate you and your entity's main account. Spokespeople and subsidiary accounts. We will continue to approve our service and change our features from time to time. Also in the feature section, it says, and this is a feature, Twitter reserves the right to without notice to remove your check mark and or any other badging at any time at its sole discretion uh so i don't know how that's a feature the ability to have your check marks uh, <laughs> removed but uh, i think this is interesting what this means is that the main feature of organizations is that you will pay a fee a monthly fee which is a thousand dollars a month but then you can also pay an extra fifty dollars a month for subsidiary accounts that are under that organization that's really the main feature of that organization account and it will make me it makes me wonder if they will force uh users that are maybe a part of uh, a larger organization to get an organization account and thus have to pay a thousand dollars a month which is ridiculous i don't know uh how many people can afford that although i'm sure oreo and and whatever uh lays chips can afford that but it'll just be interesting to see where they they draw the line at the the subscription but yeah I'm, I'm just curious to get your opinion on how you feel about legacy verification going away and do you think it really matters all that much considering that there are blue check marks everywhere now because people just pay for them i think it does matter because at least if you were verified before elon bought it because i feel like as uh 
as mysterious as the verification process was before, I felt like it meant more than once Elon bought it and brought on his paid verification. Mm -hmm. So I feel that at least if you were verified before, that should remain at the base level. You shouldn't have to pay for that anymore. Or you shouldn't have to pay for that to continue to be verified. Yeah. An interesting comment about all of this. So Elon Musk said before that the old form of verification was corrupt on Twitter. So how do you end corruption? You involve money, of course, because everyone knows more money is the solution to corruption, right? That makes sense. So I I think paid verification, I've said, is stupid. And, you know, part of one of the reasons why everyone was saying is, you know, he's doing his paid verification, Twitter blue, so that he can make back some of the money that he owes banks and he owes everyone. And at $8 a month, it's like, well, you don't have enough users on Twitter and you aren't going to have enough people paying for it to equal however many billions you owe. And then I hear about the thousand dollars a month from companies. It's like, oh, that's how you're actually planning to make up your money. Cause you know, $8 a month is pennies compared to what he owes. So thousand dollars per organization makes a lot more sense. $50 per affiliate sub account makes a lot more sense. I like, it's still ridiculously too much. I don't think people should, I don't think companies should be paying that. Of course, they're going to pay it and they have plenty of money, as you mentioned, Oreo Lays, you know, whoever, they have the money for that. Yeah. But the fact that he's charging them for that is it's kind of ridiculous. But yeah, it's, I don't know if it's going to come to more platforms. I'm assuming it's going to, right? We've already seen that Meta, Facebook, Instagram have started copying Twitter with the paid verifications. Maybe they'll add another program in for their organizations that are verified also. And then maybe that'll be $2,000. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I still think it's wrong to pay to verify that you are who you say you are. Because that just means that if someone's willing to pay more than you, then Technically, they get to be you more than you are in a way. Like if someone has, I don't know, maybe 10,000 followers and they just fundamentally don't want to pay the $8 in order to have a blue check mark and someone has 100 followers and they say, hey, I'm going to pay $8 and I'm going to make my name the same as yours. Does that mean that they're the verified version of you or the verified spoof account of you? And yeah, it's just, I think it causes more corruption, but hey. I'm not Elon Musk. I I think that's the a, a really interesting point because I, I don't know. I, I differ uh, slightly in that I kind of liked uh, Meta's version of verification. I thought the idea of actually going through and verifying people uh, was a huge step up. And I do yeah. think that yeah. if people are going to do that, they that's that's labor, right? You, you, there should probably be some kind of money that changes hands. I But I do completely agree with you. Twitter's version of verification is not really verification. They're just giving you a blue check mark. It's kind of like how he used to talk about NFTs of like, oh, you're just selling a picture uh, and expecting it to be worth a lot more. You're literally just sending, selling a picture of a blue check mark without any due diligence. And that's how this system kind of started out, right? There was a lot of people imitating Elon Musk. And sure, those accounts got banned and you're like, oh, you're not allowed to do this. But saying you're not allowed to do it, but also not doing anything to really stop it, but yet asking people to pay for it doesn't make much sense. The one thing I will say is so the one big differentiating factor now is the difference between circle circular and square profile images so for example twitter which is a verified organization has a square twitter image and that gives it a completely different look from the average user for example a verified user will have a circular image uh, as a profile picture and why i think that matters is 
that now lends to the little bit of credibility of what kind of organization you're dealing with. Um, so it adds that readability of like, okay, this is a square image. That means I'm dealing with a legitimate organization. Does this now force, because now verification can just go to anybody and can mean absolutely anything. Like if you look under the post that Twitter made about this change of uh, legacy verification going away on April 1st, you can see that almost every single person underneath that in the top version of those comments is verified. have no idea who any of those people are. Uh, they are just randoms. Uh, so that verification doesn't mean anything. But if one of them maybe had a square profile image, maybe that could dictate that, okay, this is a journalist or this is an organization that you should trust. So now does that mean that more people in order to be seen as like a legitimate person need to now pay the $1,000 a month to actually seem legitimate because anybody can pay $8 a month. I don't know. Maybe that's what they planned from all along. But yeah, I, I guess that just, it begs the question of how they dictate what counts as an organization and who they're going to push to pay the $1,000 a month for. And maybe that does help them make back a little bit of the money that, that Elon uh, spent. But yeah, it's, it's just... It's it's a mess, honestly. I, I think verification has kind of been destroyed in a way. It, it doesn't really make much sense. I don't use Twitter much, but just reading these statements from the official Twitter account and seeing the replies, it makes me realize that I don't know what this verification means because there's so many accounts there that claim to be verified, but they don't really seem to be anyone of note. Uh, mm. Which goes back to your original point of like, oh yeah, the verification needed to change because of corruption. I mean, is this not more corrupt if if it's just anybody now? But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it kind of makes you wonder where this is gonna go. Like right now, there's different tiers of verification, essentially, right? There's a blue check mark, there's a gray, there's a gold check mark where you have a different a different icon. Is there gonna be another level above that where you pay ten thousand dollars a month and <laughs> I don't know, you get a star for your icon instead, and you get a purple color check mark like it doesn't uh like yeah it's kind of it you raise a good question where are they gonna draw the line like how big do you have to be until twitter says okay no you're an organization you have to pay us a thousand dollars a month you have to do that in order to get this gold check mark so people know you're an organization mm -hmm. right because governments technically don't have to governments are i guess a different kind of organization i'm not sure if they still pay the thousand dollars a month but they get gray check marks instead of gold check marks gold check marks are just for companies you know those sorts of organizations but you brought up a good point when it comes to news sources right so like nine to five mac which is the website that i get a lot of info from i'm sure you get some info from too they have a square icon. They have a gold check mark. All right, yeah, that makes sense. They're a decently big organization, but nine to five Google. I'm not sure if it's the same company, but a very similar organization. They have a blue check mark, mm -hmm. and they have a circle. Uh, Todd B, who's like the main, I don't know, person when it comes to YouTube and the algorithm. Like he works for YouTube on the algorithm. He has no check marks, and it's kind of like, okay, how credible are these? different sources or these different levels of people like you see some and what you know this is one common thing right like celebrities were typically the people before before elon who needed to be verified because those were the people who got impersonated the most 
impersonated the easiest. So you need to verify those people so that their fans can't be taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. Right. But now is, is a celebrity more credible if they have a gold check mark than if they have a gray check mark or if they have a blue check mark? Cause I've seen like all examples of celebrities or people that you would think are an individual and they all of a sudden have a gold check mark with a, a square icon. It's like, all right, is this the actual celebrity or is this like they're calling themselves a brand now? Yeah. Or they just want to pay a thousand dollars so that they look different compared to all the other celebrities out there. Like, yeah, it's, as you said, verification is broken now, especially on Twitter, maybe not as much around the rest of the web, but especially on Twitter, verification is kind of broken now. Well, uh, and also speaking to your whole corruption thing, there is also the, not often stated that Twitter blue subscription gives you priority and replies. So you get higher up on the list. Um, if you are a Twitter blue subscriber, there doesn't seem to be much mention of that in the feature section of the organizational version of Twitter blue, but maybe there's some things hidden behind the scenes where you get even a higher, uh, you know, I guess listing in Twitter replies and in, and maybe even in the explore page and stuff like that, where, Essentially, these organizations can pay to get more favorable p- placement on the Twitter website. Um, and if that's happening, there doesn't really seem to be much communication about that. And you would have to imagine that that is happening because that's also happening with just regular Twitter Blue uh, subscriptions. So it's it's really weird. And it just goes the whole, the idea of saying something was corrupt and then using this as the method of fixing it seems to be a bit of uh hypocrisy honestly in a lot of ways yep yeah i definitely would agree with that (laughs) it's it's too corrupt so we have to make it more corrupt in order to fix the corruption and our third topic of the podcast is about epic games and their recent talk at gdc 2023 so we talked about uh epic a little bit in the past about fortnite and, you know, they talked a bit about Fortnite, about how they're using Unreal Engine 5, uh, actually Unreal Engine 5.1, as the basis for that game. They had a big changeover uh, in recent months. And they talked about how a lot of their features like uh, Nanite and Lumen, which are their geometry and ray tracing, software-based ray tracing kind of uh, implementations in integrated into the engine, were used to make uh, Fortnite a much better looking game. But then they also talked about some of the things that are coming to Unreal Engine, specifically Unreal Engine 5.2 and MetaHuman. Now, there's about uh, just over an hour-long presentation uh, about the core of the features that they're adding. I didn't watch the whole presentation. There was also some some video game demos uh, of upcoming games that are using Unreal Engine 5 and, you know, some of the ways that they're using it. But I want to focus a bit on some of the stuff that I've read, including some of the main features that they're bringing to Unreal Engine 5 in the near future. One of them, I think, is really interesting. We've talked about AI on this podcast in the past. We talked about ChatGPT. What they're doing is they're using uh, an AI model to integrate into Unreal Engine 5.2 to make uh, video game worlds and creations, uh, creating uh, dynamic worlds a little bit easier. So one of the, the examples that they used is on stage they had a Rivian... R1T in a foresty area, off-roading. And they showed a small snippet of the map that said, hey, this was handcrafted 
by game developers. You know, they placed every single object in this space um, and it's a pretty large space and, you know, you can go around and you can see that space. And then they zoomed out and then they said, but everything beyond this space was generated by our, our AI model, I'm using AI in quotes, our AI model based on the information that was used by the handcrafted area. And it kind of just seamlessly fit all together. It was just like this gigantic map that was created based off of the small section that the original person actually created and, and uh, put work into. So the way that they were describing this is like, hey, you can handcraft specific elements of your map and of your game world that you want to have full control over. But let's say you just need a larger area either for, you know, background or you're flying over it or even to interact with, uh, but you want to speed up development. Well, you can just click this button and it will look at what you created and create an entire world around that. And then what they did is they said, but you can also change that. So let's say you see this big generated area and there's this big cliff but you don't like where that cliff is placed because you want to tell the player to go down a specific path you can move that cliff uh, by clicking and dragging it and put it in a different location and then the entire world will just automatically adapt to where you move that cliff and a new path will form and now you can drive your rivian r1t down that path all in real time all in unreal engine 5.2 really really kind of cool also a little bit concerning considering, you know, we've talked about uh, video game development and specifically video game engines in the past about how many uh, companies are switching to Unreal Engine 5 and they kind of lower the amount of different looking things and different feeling things that we're getting in the video game uh, market because everyone's so focused on Unreal Engine 5. I imagine AI, once again in quotes, generated areas can also uh, accentuate that because there's a lot less human interaction with the environment. It's kind of just, you know, creating it for you based on the the information that it can see that you already created. Interesting. It definitely helps video game development in terms of making it faster. But yeah, this is kind of an interesting feature. Uh, and also it looked fantastic. It just looked uh, really, really cool and natural. It didn't look like it was out of place. Like, uh, I don't know if you maybe remember in older games, you could really see where... Uh, a creator kind of decided, oh, you know what? I don't need to worry about that area anymore. And the textures would look off or it wouldn't match up properly. This yeah. looked completely seamless and very, very good. So that was kind of cool. But then another big uh, update that they've added was an update to MetaHuman. So we've talked about MetaHuman on the podcast in the past. And this is a completely virtual kind of NPC character that you can implement into games. They had the MetaHuman creator that they launched a couple of years ago where you can go and create these very good-looking uh, 3D models of characters that you didn't have to, like, completely create from scratch. You can just go through this whole creator and make very unique-looking uh, people that you can then just import into your game and make, once again, the workflow for creating uh, content in your game, including worlds, and also characters much quicker. One of the biggest additions to this new update to MetaHuman, and I think this is actually really cool, uh, is that you can now fully mocap your uh, MetaHuman, which you could in the past. You would have to get kind of pretty extensive equipment to mocap these characters, but then you could also use like the facial deformation that was built into the MetaHuman creator and kind of do it manually there, but now you can use your iPhone, and you can actually just point your iPhone at the person who is going to be acting out 
that character and have them fully emote and use uh, their own uh, body and, and their own face to impart the movement onto the metahuman. And I think this is really cool because obviously iPhones, especially the, the higher end models, have LiDAR sensors uh, and dot projectors, which are used for things like uh, face ID. So there's a, a really cool kind of hardware implemented into these phones that allow them to see the human face and I guess other parts of the human body in, in great detail. Now, Epic has has used that because iPhones are very common and, and you know a lot of people have them to kind of say, hey, if you're a new creator or you're a new video game developer and you don't have access to the best equipment in mocap, guess what? You can just use the phone that you have in your pocket and act out uh, these characters and it looks actually really, really good. Um, now I still have concerns about Unreal Engine, but I, I have to say like this showing of Unreal Engine 5.2, really, really cool looking. And I definitely think it could help smaller developers, uh, make games look, uh, I don't want to say better, but look a little bit more triple a while at the same time, not making video game development cost tens of millions of dollars and, you know, mm -hmm. decades in order to, to complete. So I don't know. Have you seen much of uh, Unreal Engine 5.2, this GDC talk, or MetaHuman, and what are your thoughts of of how uh, Unreal Engine is progressing? I've seen a bit of uh, Unreal Engine 5.2, more specifically, you know, ways it's been used to make Fortnite look a lot better. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's like a new creative 2.0 mode yes. that some people have been showing off, and it's like people are recreating, you know, like Call of Duty maps, and they're recreating... Uh, you know, Elden Ring's levels, and it looks amazing. It looks like pretty much Shadow of the Tomb Raider level of graphics in Fortnite. But I've more specifically seen the MetaHuman animator, which I think is a huge breakthrough. I remember when we, MetaHuman first came out when we were talking about it, and just how seamlessly it made character development. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, as you said, it was, we were taking months to develop a character and get their hair right and get their eyes right and everything. It was a very simple, almost like a character creation at the beginning of a game, except there was an infinite amount of creations you could do as opposed to, you know, when you're playing a game, it's a very limited amount of things you could do. But I think we were both impressed with how easy it made character creation and, you know, how much that would take the workload off of game development studios in the future. But now we go to MetaHuman, or we go to MetaHuman in this 5.2, and we go to the animator that they've added in. And I saw the demonstration where they had an actor, they recorded her on an iPhone, they imported it into a computer, and they turned that performance, I guess, into a digital representation and a digital animation of that actor. And they, you can move the light around in the scene, you could change her hair. And they even at one point changed like completely, I guess, completely different animations on top of her performance, right? Because the thing with the MetaHuman animate or the thing with MetaHuman is you could create people so seamlessly. So at one point they had her look exactly like herself. Then they had her look like someone with brunette hair. Then they had her look like a little kid and it was all the same performance and it was all the same you know, little facial twitches and facial movements and eye movements and everything tracked perfectly. And this was all done within the span of like four minutes. Whereas before you'd think something like that, you might have to, 
spend a month just to get the original actor done. And then maybe, you know, another 15 days to port that into a child's, you know, performance and then 15 days to port it to someone else's. And that was all done within the span of like four minutes on stage. Mm -hmm. And as you said, I think it's, I think it opens a door for smaller studios to be able to produce things easier. And now you get more games from people that necessarily, you know, they didn't have the resources to produce at the level of a CD project red or produce at the level of an Epic games. But now because unreal engine is available to so many people, you'll get more games, more triple a looking games from smaller studios, which, you know, okay. Is it necessarily good that all of our game creation and even like possibly media, right? If we're talking about movies and television shows in the future, if we're talking about, everything being consolidated within unreal engine maybe not the best but the fact is it's making creation easier for a lot more people than it yeah. was before uh on to our final topic of the day there are new framework laptops now this is all announced thanks to a very clickbaity thumbnail and title from linus tech tips it's a great video um but just to get the title of the video, it was, I made a bad decision, framework investment update. The picture is him. He looks angry. There's money burning. It's like, oh no, what's going on with framework? Like they're not doing well, but it's clickbait. They're doing very well. They're coming out with new laptops and they're coming up with AMD powered laptops. Now for the first two generations, they were Intel powered. And one of the big things that people asked for was, hey, can we have AMD powered laptops? Since it came out, that's what people asked for. And they're finally bringing the Ryzen 7000 CPU to framework laptops with the third generation. People have also been asking for a larger battery and they're upgrading the battery from 55 watt hours to 61 watt hours, which is a decently big upgrade. But I guess the more important thing about the battery upgrade is it's the same size as before. So if you had a first generation framework laptop and your battery's been dying and you want to replace it, you can replace it with a newer 61 watt hour battery. The only difference between the two is there's chemistry improvements. So that's why they can fit more battery capacity into the same size as before. They're also bringing a bigger version of the laptop, which I'll get to later, a bigger 16 inch version. They're also bringing a removable GPU to that laptop, which is, I mean, another thing that people have been asking for for a long time from framework is it's great that you can upgrade the motherboard, but you know, these motherboards have the CPU and GPU baked into baked in together, right? Let's say if I want a more powerful GPU than what's offered in, in this Intel version, I don't have any option for that. So they've uh, listened to what people have asked for and they've delivered on that. They're also adding 13th gen Intel upgrades that are coming. Uh, there's a matte screen option that's coming too. And on the bigger 16 inch laptop version, like I said, it features a removable dedicated GPU expansion slot on the back. So now you can upgrade your CPU and you can upgrade your GPU independently of 
each other. Now, they haven't gone into full details about, you know, about this actual laptop, about what kind of GPU it's going to feature, whether it's going to be an AMD or a NVIDIA GPU. If I had to guess, it'd be AMD. Or I guess, you know, maybe it'll be both. Maybe we'll have options for both. Uh, but, you know, considering that they are now offering AMD CPUs, I'm going to assume they're going to offer AMD GPUs too, but no specifics on that yet. But as is typical framework fashion, it's going to be open source in terms of the design. So it's initially designed for GPUs, but you could use it for other things. You could use it for extra SSD slots. You could use it for a capture card. Let's say if you're a company that makes some sort of proprietary tech that no one else is going to design for you, you could open, you could use the open source designs to make that part for yourself that will fit directly onto the back of your framework laptop, your 16 inch framework laptop. The bigger version also has modules on the sides of the trackpad. So if you think of a MacBook Pro, how they have, you know, the speakers on the side, they have speakers on the sides of the keyboard that can actually be removed. And when I saw this in the video, I was like, holy crap, I didn't, I didn't think those could come off. Right. So there are speakers with LED lights flashing in them. You could remove those. You could, I don't know, they put wood panels on the side if that's what you're into. Um, and they also, you can remove the entire keyboard itself the same way. So instead of taking the entire laptop apart to remove the keyboard or swap the keyboard, in the video, Linus showed you can take the keyboard, you can move it to the left, you can move it to the right, you can add a numpad the same way, you could add a secondary display. Um, yeah, it's it's ridiculous the amount of stuff you can do if you're interested. We'll post a link in the show notes. But the whole time I was watching the video, I was kind of losing my mind as to how customizable this device looked. There's also more I.O. spots on it. So the typical 13-inch framework has four slots on the sides. This one has six I.O. module slots on the sides for, you know, easily swapping in whether, whatever input you want. They're also updating the marketplace. So third-party manufacturers can sell directly to consumers on the marketplace. Also, consumers can trade and swap I.O. modules directly with each other. So yeah, definitely huge thumbs up for this announcement. I was surprised by it. I was surprised by everything that they showed off in it, but I'm, I'm definitely interested to hear your thoughts on this. First of all, the fact that, you know, they're bringing a bigger framework laptop, a 16 inch, and that they're bringing AMD removable GPU. I'm just interested in your thoughts on all of it. I mean, this is insane. <laughs> this is, this is one of those things where it's like, you would have assumed that none of this stuff, stuff that they're doing is possible just because no one in the laptop market has done it. Uh, you know, we've seen things like, um, the X13 flow, uh, um, oh, yeah, yeah. where you could like dock it to an external, uh, GPU and stuff like that. And, you know, like we've seen a lot of really cool and powerful machines, but we've never seen one where it's like, you don't like the way this comes out of the factory. Well, you can change it. You can upgrade it. Uh, and I, I think this is really important specifically when we're talking about the 16 inch version which I have one really big issue with, which I'll get to in a second. But um, with the 16-inch version, I want to give it a lot of props for a couple of reasons. One, I like the design upgrade. Uh, what they did with the 16-inch uh, version over the 15-inch version is they made the keyboard deck area like an all-black kind of look. Um, mm -hmm. And then, so it's kind of two-tone. It's all black where the keyboard is, and then where the trackpad is, it's silver. 
uh, and it, it kind of has a, a nice classy look to it. Uh, like you mentioned, it does have the six slots for the added modules as opposed to four, which is really cool. It gives you more expandability. The idea that you can add a, a numpad is amazing. A lot of larger laptops, like 16 and 17 inch laptops, do have numpads, uh, but not everybody wants a numpad. Some people just like their keyboard to be fully center uh, and in line with their trackpad. So when they're typing and, and moving on the on the trackpad, everything feels natural. But some people, if they're doing a lot of spreadsheets, they need a trackpad. And in the past, it's been you could have one or the other. You could never have both. You could never decide which one you wanted. It's like that model either has a track or has a numpad or it doesn't. They said, hey, if you want a numpad, not only can you get it later and just swap your components around to add it in, but you can just decide you don't want it and you can have RGB uh, light show on the side or you could have wood or you could have whatever you want. It's it's just a really, really amazing thing. And then the added modules, the GPU modules is just... So years ago, I bought a laptop, a Lenovo laptop. Uh, it was an IdeaPad Y500 or 400 or something like that. And the idea was you bought the laptop, you it came with a GPU, and if you wanted, you could take out the disk drive and you can slot in a second GPU to it uh, to increase your graphics performance and have it run in SLI and stuff like that, or, or Crossfire. I, I think it was AMD at the time. I don't remember. But anyways... That was something that was unheard of, and they quickly, very quickly abandoned that. Like, <laughs> they didn't support that at all. Uh, and ever since then, there really hasn't been any uh, manufacturers that have really tried anything like this. There was uh, Dell, where they made a really, really large laptop, like a comically large laptop that had desktop-based CPUs in it that you could actually swap out. They didn't recommend that you did that, but you could if you really wanted to. It was socketable. Uh, but yeah, no one was really taking this idea seriously. And the fact that Framework, a brand new entrant into the space, someone who doesn't have, or a company that doesn't have billions of dollars from investors and stuff like that ingrained into their ecosystem where they can make risks and, or they can take risks and, and fail and, and still recover, like uh, Dell or HP or even Asus uh, can to a certain extent, much smaller extent, but to a certain extent, uh, they kind of have to succeed. So the fact that they're actually going against the grain, I think is deserves commendation. Uh, they make the big players in the market like Apple and like Dell and like HP look stupid, honestly, uh, considering the fact that they're a much smaller organization and they're doing much cooler things and much more consumer-friendly things. Uh, so yeah, I, I can't be more happy with what they're doing here. I think it's something that needs to be applauded. One downside, I will say this, the 16-inch version doesn't have a headphone jack, <laughs> uh, but they're making a module specifically for a headphone jack. I, to quote Randy Orton, that's stupid. It's just incredibly <laughs> stupid. And I, when I was watching the video, I was just repeating stupid in my head over and over again, uh, like Randy Orton did with Kofi Kingston. Not important. But anyways, uh, it's just one of those things where it didn't make much sense to me. Uh, but that is the decision that they made. And it's a small it's a small little thing that I'm not happy with compared to the fact that everything else that they're doing here is, is really, really cool and really consumer friendly. A couple of other things I want to point out uh, in the Linus Tech Tip vi Tips video that isn't on their website yet, but I'm sure they're going to talk about it soon. 
they mentioned that they are have partnered with, I believe, oh man, I can't remember the case manufacturer, but they partnered with a case manufacturer to make an enclosure for people who don't have 3D printers so that they can have an enclosure for their old hardware. Because Framework does like the like you to have the ability to upgrade the internals of your machines. Now that will be a little bit limited uh, between the 16 and the 13 inch version. Those are going to be separate. I don't think you're going to be able to swap a 16 inch version of the motherboard into a 13 inch. But I think that is still really cool of the fact that you can take out the motherboard and buy a separate enclosure and use that as a desktop when you upgrade your laptop. It's just a great idea. It allows there to be less e-waste. Uh, and same thing with the battery. The fact that the battery is the same size, so it's swappable between the two versions, even though it's a higher capacity, that is a choice that they had to make from the beginning when they started developing that new battery. And it was a smart decision, a decision that most companies wouldn't make, but they did. And that allows someone who already owns a framework laptop to get a better machine just by getting a better battery and not having to buy a whole new machine. Really cool. The other thing I want to mention is, so the added GPUs. They mentioned that in this video that they're using a particular connector that, like you said, is going to be open and other people are going to be able to create stuff for this. So they specifically said, hey, a GPU manufacturer can just say, I want to make a new GPU for this laptop. And there's going to be no restriction for that. They can even sell it on Framework's website. And then on top of that, they are also saying that also, if you want that GPU to be used outside of the laptop, we want you to be able to put it into an external GPU enclosure or add it to your desktop or add it to a completely different machine. Um, so it's not just proprietary lockdown to the framework laptop. Like all of this stuff is insanely cool. And I mean, we could talk about it all day. I could definitely talk about it all day. Uh, I just can't uh, express how cool and amazing this is. Although I will imagine that it's going to be quite expensive, but I don't care. I think this is, if I compare this to something like a MacBook, which great machines will never say anything about that, that they're not great machines. But when you talk about how much you're paying for those machines and what you're getting, what you get is what you get. You can't change it. You can't do anything with it. It's just that. Yeah. Uh, if I'm paying the same amount or a little bit more for something that I can convert into a completely different machine, I can gift to someone um, for it to be their first machine. Like This is just so much more valuable, in my opinion, than what every other manufacturer in the laptop space is doing yeah definitely and you brought up a good point right like they are a newer company they're a younger company they don't have the billions of dollars that other companies have and they're creating these things and they're taking risks right remember when we first started talking about framework you know we said their vision is great what they say they want to do is great but we just hope it's true mm-hmm Right. We like, yeah, the fact that they're selling a laptop that you could upgrade yourself, that you can, you know, customize yourself after the fact. It's a great idea. But let's see if they follow through on it. And then they came out with the second generation. It's like, all right, you know, it's great. You made it to second generation and they made improvements. And if you wanted to swap out the screen, you could. If you want to swap out keep they you know, they made good improvements. And now they're on their third generation. And we're seeing not only are they continuing to you know have upgrades for their base model but now they have a second model right and they're adding all these new features like the removable gpu which in the video i believe they said they got the idea from dell who came out with it in like 2008 but then did nothing with it mm -hmm. 
and they didn't even open source to the design. So Framework then kind of had to back engineer the design themselves. And then now they're making it open source for everyone. Like you said, if someone else, if Asus, if MSI, or if someone wants to just develop an enclosure for it, they can do that because they're going to make it open. So the fact that they're taking risks that bigger companies aren't making things more consumer friendly and that they're like, they're sticking by their word, right? As, as I said, when they first came out, when we first started talking about them, we were saying, you know, we hope that this happens. We hope that they follow through with this and we hope that they stick around. And for them to now be on their third generation, I think, you know, I'm, I've always been a fan of framework. I'm very happy to see it. And yeah, just like kudos to them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with regards to framework. Like I was definitely very skeptical of the original claim that they made uh, years ago. And I even said it on this podcast and I admitted that I was very wrong when they added in the upgradable boards. I never thought that that would happen. Um, and they just brought it up to 11 uh, with this one, with, with this new announcement. I, I hope, you know, these, these launch relatively soon and aren't too expensive. Although, like I said, I don't really mm -hmm. care if they are expensive because they're doing such cool things. But uh, yeah, I just got to give them props for completely uh, making me 180 on, on how I felt about the company from <laughs> thinking that they were just making empty promises because that's something we're so used to in this space to oh, yeah. executing and then going above and beyond. It's just amazing. Yeah. Like so many companies will promise the modular this or you can upgrade yeah. this on your own and they'll design like, who is it, LG that had the whole swappable phone where you could yeah. put a camera on the back or you could put a swap out your battery and that maybe lasted a year yeah. right and now we're on like the third fourth year framework so yeah congratulations framework uh take it easy everyone in podcast land catch you in the next episode